by looking at the book of Job. That'll get you excited about facing life. I have to, I have to admit, I have to confess something here. I confess to envy. Boy, if I had a voice like Olin Morris's, I could really go places. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Great. Olin, thanks for leading us in prayer. Uh, let's turn to Job 32 through 37. And here we meet a new character, Elihu. And what is interesting about Elihu is that he obviously is a friend of some sort of Job's, but he's not one of the three. The three seem to be contemporaries of Job. This guy, Elihu, is a young guy. And it is a wonderful, uh, it is a wonderful study on how you as young guys uh, fit in when you have something to contribute. And a wonderful lesson to the old guys uh, about how to encourage young guys. It's, it's interesting to me over the 30-plus uh, uh, years that I've been a self-aware adult, 35 years maybe, that uh, things seem to be changing. Uh, the, uh, with uh, my parents' generation, there was a lot of restlessness uh, among my peers. I mean, all you have to do is go back and check out the 60s and you'll see how restless we were. Uh, we were revolutionaries. Uh, we wanted to break the mold on all kinds of things, including the moral uh, heritage of our parents. Uh, but eventually, what my generation sought to do was to take the institutions of our fathers and mothers and transform them into something a little different. Uh, the next generation, the one that's, say, 30 years behind me, I'm not sure they want the old institutions at all. Uh, it seems to me that there's a, actually a deeper uh, breach, a deeper break between these two generations than there even was between the one ahead of me. That's the way it seems to me. Maybe my father felt the same way. I don't know. I suppose... Those of you who are 35, you'll feel, feel maybe the same way too. But <clears throat> I really believe there is something substantially different. And I think it probably, uh, as well as all the macro things happening in our culture and in the world, in our economy, I think a lot of it must go back to family. Uh, those in my generation uh, grew up in, I mean, it's a mixed report. Uh, some of the families were happy and godly and peaceful. Most of them not. Our parents had problems, but they kind of stuck it out. Uh, it may have been uncomfortable. It may have made us angry the way that they didn't love each other the way they ought to have, but they basically stuck it out. Our generation decided we're changing that too. <laughs> why, why stay married if you're not happy? And so we solved that problem and have these massive divorce rates. And so I think one of the influences on the... the the 30-somethings, is a uh, hugely different family structure where uh, in very large numbers, maybe up to 50%, they've experienced real abandonment by my generation, namely their fathers and mothers, which seems to me to induce a certain cynicism about the reliability of that whole generation. And I would have to say it's probably very well deserved, that cynicism. 
and therefore uh, a slowness to trust uh, that same generation. Sometimes my generation misinterprets that as that these guys don't want to lead. They don't want to take any responsibility and so on. They really do. They just have a very different way of doing it. We don't have time to get into all that today, but they do have a very different way of doing it. And if you're in business right now or you're in a profession right now or you're, uh, you're in a situation where you are dealing with uh, folks who are 30 years your junior, I just encourage you to slow down and listen very carefully and try to read the literature and figure out your own environment rather than applying the old formulas to a new work environment. I don't think they work in the same way. You need, you need to reinterpret what's going on inside the hearts and minds of those around you. And those who are younger, of course, uh, will eventually gain perspective on their own generation because they will have experienced a number of generations in a few years and they, they will have perspective as well. That will come later. But it's very interesting that Elihu is a young guy. And what we're going to see is that uh, there are certain advantages to youth. And by youth, I mean under 40. And, of course, you guys know as you get older, youth keeps getting older. <laughs> so, uh, but generally, in the first century, a young man was a man under 40, and an older man was over 40. So if we just take under 40, there, there are some real advantages. Uh, young adults tend to look at things with fresh eyes. They don't feel as bound to some of the traditions that some of us older ones think have been well-proven and tested and therefore, we don't challenge the traditions because we, we think they're firmly in place. We don't even want to mess with the nuances. It's too much trouble. And uh, it reminds me of coming out of the church uh, one day. This was the first church I served years ago. There was a holly tree that needed to be trimmed. And I was walking out with one of our senior elders. He was about 70. And we were walking out, in, uh, and he, or maybe he was 75. And he, he looked at that holly tree and said, you know, that holly tree needs to be trimmed. He said, before it would ever grow back, I'd be across the street in the funeral home. <laughs> and obviously that stuck with me 30 years ago. I was thinking, you know what? When you get older, you get a little less enthusiastic about changing things because before you ever see the results of it, you're going to be you know, six feet under. And there's just something that happens to you with age. You just get a little less enthusiastic about making dramatic changes. And we need young adults who, who have a 50-, 60-year perspective you know, to add to our 10, 20-year perspective uh, that will challenge us to get on board to keep transforming things and keep challenging the status quo. So we desperately need young people. And I suppose speaking as a 58-year-old, that's what concerns me more than anything. It's not just that they're, they're losing us. I don't want to lose them uh, because we need that voice. We need that perspective. We need that energy and that desire to see things change. We're also going to see that that... Young folks and old folks alike need to be very careful about the role of anger in your life. And here we're going to have Elihu, who was a young guy who also had an anger problem. And I do see a lot of anger uh, in the young adult generation. And once again, I just go back to the home life. Uh, you have this floating anger that comes from people being abandoned. When you're abandoned... That leaves you in a very angry state. Some of you old guys have historic reasons going back to early childhood. I mean, I'm talking about 70 years ago. And you're still dealing with that stuff. And you will. And you understand. 
But we're left with anger, and we need to learn how to handle that anger. And we're going to see that Elihu doesn't do it so well. So maybe we can learn negatively, but we can also learn positively because Elihu has some things going for him. But Elihu is listening to this discussion between Job and his friends, all this dialogue going back and forth. He keeps himself real quiet. He's the young guy. He's just listening to these guys. And you're going to see that he ends up very angry about this discussion. He thinks it's going nowhere and they're wasting their time. Let's look at just the first five verses and see how, how it's put here. So these three men, that would be Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So they, they basically gave up because they were trying to challenge him that he wasn't righteous and he was defending his righteousness. And they just said, it's his word against our word, we quit. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, and, and this means, of course, this guy's, this guy's in the, in the, he's a Hebrew, so he, this guy's a brother, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. So let's stop right there. Remember we said that it's very important for us to develop our theodicy. What is a theodicy? It's the Theos is God. DC comes from the word dikao, which means to justify or to make righteous. So theodicy is the righteousness or justification of God. And so Job had his theodicy. Yet what is angering Elihu is that Job was not justifying God. He was not working out a theodicy. He was working out a Jobdicy. He was justifying Job. And he got very angry at that. But look at verse 3. He was also angry with the three friends. So when you're angry, you're just going to be angry just whatever you can get angry at. Because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. So they condemned Job, but they couldn't refute him. That's frustrating. Now, Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. You have the word anger there three times. Elihu's one frustrated young guy. He wants answers. He wants life to make sense. And he thinks he's got the answer. He's been listening to these guys like a ping pong ball. And they are getting nowhere. Uh, and so he launches. Now, here's what I'd like for us to notice. First of all, as we just scan these six chapters, uh, I mean, this is not like going through from chapter 4 to chapter 27, <laughs> but uh, like we did the other day. But we're going to scan six chapters. And we're going to see, first of all, that Elihu did some things well. And I'd like for us to notice what he did well. We need to learn, learn this ourselves. Uh, how do you engage an argument, even a theological argument? How do you engage an argument where someone's feelings are deeply involved in business? How do you, how do you get your, your oar in the water? Well, Elihu did three things, I think, that were done very well. Number one, he admitted his anger. Hey, if you're going to be angry, at least admit it. What's really frustrating is when you're angry and you won't admit it. Uh, so if you've got an anger problem, fess up. And Elihu said, I'm ticked. He admitted it. And that's good to do because when you're angry, you're likely to overstate your position. You're likely to over-criticize another person. And if you'll admit you're angry, you're giving your opponents 
the freedom to say, hey, Sandy, I think, I think your anger is getting away from you. In other words, you're letting yourself be held accountable to your overstatements, your overcriticisms by simply admitting, hey, okay, look, I'm, I'm angry. I'm trying to cool down, but I'm angry. And he did that to his credit. Secondly, he followed tradition by waiting his turn. You see it there in verse 4. He had waited before speaking to Job because they were older. And guys, I don't think that I don't think that ever gets old for a young guy to recognize that age has some place. And I know that in many workplaces uh, we're becoming more ageless. I mean, you earn your place at the table by your ideas, by your performance, and it's very it's much very much a meritocracy. Uh, but you know what? It seems to me that the Bible says that it's good for us to honor our elders. And that doesn't mean your ideas aren't communicated. doesn't mean you don't challenge an old guy. But it means that if someone's been around there a little longer, he probably speaks first. And I tell you, you'll just be so wise to do it because I've just found even being here 14 years, especially if I'm with older members, I have to listen a while to uh, do what they say uh, is getting the minutes. In other words, you know, like people take minutes at meetings and if you go to a meeting and you haven't been to those meetings, you better read the minutes first and find out what's been happening in those meetings before you get there. Otherwise, you come in and you, you're going to sound like a know-it-all, and they've been talking about the same thing for three weeks, but you, you think you're the first one that thought of it. You better read the minutes and get the context. Well, you need to read the minutes with people. You need to listen to them and get the context and find out what's already been said and who knows what. And listen very carefully because you will learn. And the wisest person is, is often the last one to speak. As we'll see in Job, God's the last one to speak. God listens first to all the foolishness first. Well, he waited his turn, and you're always wise to wait your turn. Some people are very eager to get the first word in. They want to get credit for having thought of the idea first. So if I say it now before somebody else says the same thing, I'll, you know, I'll have the microphone. I'll get credit for it. I've noticed probably the smartest people that I'm around, that, that's usually not their technique unless they're asked to do it. If they're asked to put something on the table first, of course, they carefully prepare their presentation. But if they're just coming cold to a meeting, they usually listen. You, just, you, you notice this when you go out to meetings this week. Uh, pick the one that you, you think is wisest in the room. Just watch what he does. He'll, he'll usually wait and keep his powder dry. Uh, it's, it's also a sign of respect, as we see here. He waited his turn, to his credit. Thirdly, Elihu spoke the truth. He said a lot of wonderful things that need to be taken to heart. And some scholars, because of the problems with Elihu that we'll see in a few moments, think that Elihu was added later to Job, that it was an addition, that the original Job went right from uh, chapter 31 right into 38, and they skip Elihu. They think that he's a late addition. I don't agree. Some people want to dismiss Elihu as being relatively unimportant for reasons we'll see in a moment. I don't agree. Uh, it seems to me that the language uh, from reading the Hebrew scholars is uh, contiguous with, uh, or is consistent with what's contiguous to it in the text, and uh, it, it seems to me it fits right in. And the author gave this man six chapters for a reason, uh, for for us to learn from this man's mistakes as well as what he did right. But let's learn from what he did right. In these six chapters, there are four speeches. And you see them outlined there. Uh, chapters 32 and 33 are the first speech. Chapter 34 is the second speech. 
Chapter 35 is the third speech. Chapter 36 and 37 is the fourth speech. He gives four speeches. Now, notice, first of all, in the first speech, let me try to summarize it this way. He's saying, Elihu is saying, that Job's problem is that he focused on justifying himself rather than God. You'll notice in verses 9 and 12 of chapter 33, he says, But you have said in my hearing, I am pure and without sin. In this you are not right, he says in verse 12, for God is greater than man. So he's attacking Job for uh, seeking simply to justify himself as a righteous man rather than thinking about God's reputation. And of course, that's, that happens to us, doesn't it, when we suffer? We're aware of our own pain. We're asking questions that have to do with me. It's all about me. And Elihu is saying, basically, and saying quite rightly, Job, this is not all about you. And you've gotten so concerned about your righteousness and whether you're being punished or how God's treating you, you've forgotten God's character himself. So Elihu sees through something uh, to, to his credit. You'll notice that he starts off by saying in, in chapter 32, he, he ramps up to this very slowly. He's saying um, that, you know, he starts off in verse Six, if you'll look there, I'm young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. But then look at verse 10. Therefore I say, listen to me, I too will tell you what I know. <laughs> so he says, well, I was slow to tell you what I know, but now I'm going to tell you what I know. And he introduces himself and justifies <coughs> his speaking. And you'll notice when you get to verse 16 of chapter 32, you, you see this guy's all fired up. He said, must I wait now that they are silent, these three guys, now that they stand there with no reply? I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know. There's that phrase again, what I know. For I am, look at this, full of words and the spirit within me compels me. This guy's a charismatic. He's basically saying, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you this. So he's compelled by the spirit. And look how he describes it. This is a wonderful description in verse 19. Inside I am like bottled up wine like new wineskins ready to burst. We would say, the cork is ready to come off the top of the bottle. Pow! He just built up such pressure from the fermentation of his ideas that haven't yet been expressed. And of course we feel that way, don't we? You know, if, if, you, if you're an entrepreneur, you want to start new things. If you're an artist, you want to write or dance or sing or draw or paint. It just, and, and something just bubbles up in you. Uh, Jeremiah said it was that way with the Word of God. Well, this guy's saying, that's the way I feel. I must speak. Look, verse 20, and find relief. So now, who's it all about now? Elihu is saying, I got to talk because I'm going to burn up if I don't. Okay, so now it's about Elihu. You got to talk. Okay. At least he admits it. I will show partiality to no one. Now look at verse 21. This is the important verse here. I will show partiality to no one, nor will I flatter any man. Verse 21. Why is that so significant? I think it's significant because oftentimes, <clears throat> especially if you're young and angry or old and angry, you think that you've got this great virtue. You're so courageous. You don't flatter anybody. You tell it like it is. You're blunt. You're straightforward. You know what it is? It's an excuse for insensitivity. Oftentimes it's just an excuse to be undiplomatic and to be unkind. And I see this here. Because Elihu is not going to be particularly kind. He is angry. And so he's saying, I don't flatter anybody. Okay. You know, of course, there's a, there's a, 
there's a part of that that's wonderful. We shouldn't flatter people. Flattery is sin. Flattery is manipulation. Flattery is about you, not about the person you're talking about. Flattery is saying something positive that's not true. Encouragement is saying something positive that is true. That's encouragement. So we encourage. We don't flatter. Good. But this man's using it as a pretense, pretext for, for his own uh, insensitivity. Then when you get to, to chapter 33, you find that he puts it really clearly uh, as we've seen in the verses quoted there, verse 8 and 9. He's quoting Job now. Job, I heard what you said. You said I'm pure and without sin. I'm clean and free from guilt. And then he says, verse 12, But I tell you, in this you are not right. For God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him, verse 13, that he answers none of man's words? And then he says, Job, you complain. See what verse 13 is saying? He's saying, Job, I'm going to quote you. You're complaining that he doesn't answer our words, that God is quiet. He's silent. And Elihu, to his credit, he's justifying God. He said, that's not true about God. He does communicate, Job. And he, he communicates in this way. First of all, look at verse 15. He communicates in dreams. So he'll even speak to us in a vision in the night, Job. And then verse 19, here is probably the one idea that Elihu adds to the three friends. It's just snuck in here in this one verse. Or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in his bones. So Elihu is saying, God even speaks to us through our pain. In other words, our pain can be a discipline to shape us into the person He wants us to be. That's a contribution that Elihu makes to this discussion. That's about the only one, by the way. But right there it is in verse 19. And so he's saying God speaks to us in dreams and visions. And we would say the dreams and visions of the prophets. He gives us, he gives us the Bible. He speaks to us in our pain. And... Uh, he says to him as, as you go on, he even provides mediators. Look at verse 23. Yet if there is an angel on his side as a mediator, one out of a thousand to, to, to tell a man what is right for him, to be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit. He says if God uses angels, which he does as mediators, he's using them to spare us from the pit. And he, he redeems us. And then what happens? Look at verse 26. This is Elihu speaking. He says he prays to God and he finds favor with him. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to his righteous state. Then he comes to men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, but I did not get what I deserved. So, Job, here's the way it works. God will listen to your confession. He'll cleanse your heart. He'll renew you and put you back and restore you in the shape you're in. Then you can come and tell us you were a sinner. That's the way it's supposed to work, Job. So Elihu is trying to get straight Job's theology. And there's some things about Job's theology that need to get straight. Now let's look at the second speech. And here the basic idea is that Elihu is saying Job has inflated himself and deflated or defamed God. And once again, he quotes Job. Look at verse 5. Job says, I'm innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I'm right, I'm considered a liar. Although I am Guiltless, his arrow inflicts an incurable wound. And then Elihu asks the question, What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water 
He keeps company with wicked people, evildoers. He associates with wicked men. For he says, and he's quoting Job again, it profits a man nothing when he tries to please God. Now from verse 10 down, all the way near the end of this chapter, he straightens Job out. He says, you are defaming God. He says in verse 10, far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays a man for what he has done. He brings upon him what his conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. And then you get to the end of the chapter, verse 31, down at the bottom of page 792. He says, Suppose a man says to God, I am guilty but will offend no more. Teach me what I cannot see. If I have done wrong, I will not do so again. Should God then reward you on your own terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I. So tell me what you know. Job speaks without knowledge, he says. His words lack insight. Verse 36, Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin he adds rebellion. Scornfully he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. So now Elihu is defending God, claiming that Job is deflating or defaming God and saying, God is not what you're saying, Job. He punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. Now let's look at the third speech. Elihu is saying that Job arrogantly demanded from God rather than humbly waiting for God. So he's saying, Job, you're being very demanding. And God is not going to listen to this rubbish. Verse 2, do you think this is just? You say, I will be cleared by God. Yet you ask Him, what profit is it to me and what do I gain by not sinning? So Job is saying that God is not going to listen to it. Look at verse 12. He does not answer when men cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. How much less then will He listen when you say that you do not see Him, that your case is before Him and you must wait for Him, and further, that His anger never punishes and He does not take the least notice of wickedness? So Job opens his mouth with empty talk. Without knowledge, he multiplies words. So he says, Job, as long as you approach God the way you're approaching Him, as long as you're as arrogant and you're demanding ways toward Him, He's not even going to listen to you. Why should He bother? He doesn't listen to rebels. And you've added to your sin rebellion. So don't expect Him to answer you. And that's the reason you don't feel like He's answering you. When you get to the fourth speech, Chapter 36 and 37. He says, Job, bottom line, here's the real problem. You've been talking rather than listening. You haven't been listening to God. And furthermore, you've been, you've been answering just like wicked people do. You're responding to your suffering like wicked people. And Elihu here goes into some moralisms, which are not true, of course, but he does say some true things about God. God is sovereign. Look at verse 22. God is exalted in His power. Who is a teacher like Him? Who has prescribed His ways for Him or said to Him, 
you have done wrong. Remember to extol His work, which men have praised in song. All mankind has seen it. Men gaze on it from afar. How great is God! To God be the glory, great things He hath done. Beyond our understanding, the number of His years is past finding out. And then he talks about how the weather, verses 27 through 33, is under His control. And then look at verse 14 in chapter 37. And he's, he's really asking Job this question. Can you realistically think that you can challenge God? Look who God is. Verse 14. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes His lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised? Those wonders of Him who is perfect in knowledge... You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies hard as a mirror of cast bronze? Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told what I want to speak? Would any man ask to be swallowed up? He's basically saying, God doesn't have time for your pettiness. You think you're making this big case and you want to present it to God. Let me tell you, pissant, that God is big. He doesn't have time for your little pettiness and your little problems and your little complaints. He is Lord over all. Who do you think you are, Job? That's, that's kind of what Elihu is saying. Now, there's some truth in this. Let's remember who we are. The wonderful thing about Job, gentlemen, is that in the Psalms, when David complains against God, by the time you get to the end of the psalm, David resolves it. and says, okay, Lord, uh, I relent. You're great. I'm small. You're righteous. I'm not. You know, we get resolution. Job goes on and on. <laughs> and it's kind of nice because we go on and on. We can identify here. And Elihu, in his moralistic perspective, is still communicating some true things. God is great. This chapter 37, some scholars who really don't like Elihu have had to admit this is a great chapter and actually leads us into chapter 38 when God does speak and reveals His own glory and His own sovereignty. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot to learn from angry young men and angry old men. You have to listen carefully because they really blow you off. But Elihu has done some things well. Well, let's take a moment to look at what Elihu did poorly. Elihu did some things poorly. Let's scope these same chapters for just a moment. And I'd like for us to notice five things that we really need to pay attention to. First of all, he repeats what has already been said. Now, I, in my life, I've noticed that uh, I spent probably, after becoming a Christian, I probably spent at 25, I probably spent the next 20 to 25 years reading. And most of the things that I would put into practice were implied from what I had been reading and studying and the questions I had asked older men who had helped me. And so it was by inference. I was learning and putting these principles into truth by inference. And then I noticed after about 25 years or so, I started to lean more on my own intuitions. And the reason for that is I've, I've put 25 years in reading and I put 25 years in observing and talking to people. I still talk to people and I still read. 
But uh, for, I was a slow bloomer. Most of you get it you know, earlier than that. Maybe it's 40. When you start thinking, you know, I, I think I can think this through myself. I mean, in other words, I think I can do this intuitively. Uh, it depends on what field you're in. It depends on how smart you are. And like I say, I'm a little on the slower side. But, but it was probably 50 before I felt like I could, uh, I could just sit down and write on something out of my own experience and feel like I've got a fresh perspective on this. What you have to realize as a younger man, you are listening carefully to everything around you because you don't have the experiences that give you this library of experience from which you can draw inferences. You're really depending upon the experiences of other people, and you're working more as a scholar than you are a real thinker. And so I would just say, be real careful in your youth that people around you know you're quoting other people, mostly. And it doesn't ring as true as people who are, who are speaking out of their own intuitions. There's a difference between the way an old man thinks and the way a young man thinks. And Elihu really didn't give us anything new, except for that one verse I showed you. And I think, actually, Eliphaz already hinted at it, the fact that suffering was a discipline. So there was nothing new there. Why did he go into this? Why did Elihu make these speeches if he had nothing new to contribute? Well, he was angry. He admitted that. But what, what, why, what other reasons do we have for wanting just to, to speak up? Isn't it because sometimes we're insecure? We want to have our voice at the table. We want to be part of the team. We want to make a contribution. We're trying so hard. I really think if you don't have a contribution, you're just a whole lot better off just keeping quiet. Really. You have more credibility not saying anything than you do with these four long speeches from Elihu, and he didn't say anything. He was just angry. And I'm, I'm going to get to the theological reason as to why he was angry and what the resolution is. And he was angry. He had justified reason for being angry. But in your anger and in your insecurity, you just want to play ball somehow, and it doesn't, doesn't help. And the second thing that he did poorly, it took him forever to say it. My stars. I mean, it's one thing not to say anything new. It's, it's another thing to take four speeches to do it. And the problem is uh, that all of us have to, have to watch out for uh, our advice is not really helpful when we're repeating what other people say and we just go around the bush and say it in a different way and we say it over and over again. And that's what Elihu is doing. He is, he's an expert on the obvious. And it's demeaning to the intelligence of these older men for him to be pounding them, pounding Job. Job knows everything he's saying. He's heard it from his three friends. Job's thought a lot more about this than Elihu has. And Elihu just needs to sing in a whole lot lower key and make his song a little shorter. So he takes way too long to do it. Um, and I suppose sometimes we have to admit that we like to hear our own voices. It's a real danger. And I would just advise you in whatever setting you're in, do the group that you're working with a real favor by trying to summarize what you're saying in fewer words. And I know you're, <laughs> some of you who know me well are saying, now this is the pot calling that kettle black. <laughs> I know. I speak out of experience of having violated this so many times. And some of us, and I'm one of them, we actually think out loud. And we also think through argumentation. In other words, it's helpful for me to clarify my thoughts if I can say something and you push back, and then I push back and you push back, and it helps me clarify. It takes a toll on, on you but it helps me think. So if you are like that, let me just say in your working environment, you need to tell everybody around you what you're like 
and make an apology for it and ask their permission to do that because that's not the way most people think. Uh, if you're an extrovert and you're verbal, like I am, you might do that, uh, that you benefit from argumentation. A lot of people don't like that at all. They'd rather go off by themselves and think it through alone and come back with their best answer. So you need to ask for permission to engage in that. And Elihu just goes on and on. And I suppose he's working it out himself, working out his own anger, but he's taking a toll on poor old Job. Um, what's interesting when you get to the end of Job, the three friends are, are chastened by God. In chapter 42, verses 7 through 9, God doesn't even mention Elihu. I mean, that's, that's the, the worst condemnation of all, is just to be completely ignored. He's not saying anything new, and he's going on and on and on. Thirdly, Elihu makes the same pastoral mistakes. He blames Job's problems on Job's unrepented sins. That's the same pastoral mistake made by Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And all it does is worsen Job's sufferings. It doesn't make it any better. It's tragic that the young guy with new perspectives really doesn't bring a new perspective of all at all. He just piles on. And he's trying to hammer Job into submission through his anger. And let me say, this is probably a, a clue to us about something. Uh, some guys, young guys, uh, and you know, the, the, 30, the 20s and 30s do want more mentoring than my generation wanted. And I think here's the reason. I grew up with a father. I could pick up the phone and call him anytime. I had an old guy that knew me very well. He's gone on to be with the Lord now, but he knew me very well. And I could pick up the phone and ask him for advice, and I'd get good advice out of him. He was, he was not uh, an elder or a deacon in the church. Uh, I think he drank too much for that. But uh, he, and he, to his credit, didn't want to be a hypocrite because the Baptist had a covenant about no alcohol, and he was looking at some of these uh, country club buddies of his who, who were deacons. You know, they were drinking with him, and he thought, no, I don't want to do that. I'll just not be a deacon. Anyway, he wasn't a, he wasn't a church guy. But he just had good horse sense. He gave, me, he gave me many good pieces of advice. The next generation, as we've mentioned, many of them have been abandoned. They don't have the father in the home. So they're looking for more mentoring. And those of you who are over 40 need to be giving it. And you need to give more of it than you think you wanted when you were 20 or 25 years old. Because it's more needed than it was when you were 25 years old. But be very careful about something. A lot of guys who are protégés, they'll have one key guy who's their mentor, and there's, I suppose there's nothing wrong with that, as long as you're aware of a, a particular danger. And that is, if you have one mentor, you'll not only study his strengths, you'll study his weaknesses, and you'll take them to yourself. And that's the reason if someone asks me, Sandy, who's discipled you? I just say the Church of Jesus Christ has discipled me. You know, there have been so many men, many of you in this room, I've spent time with and learned so much from. I intend to keep doing that. I have, and I learn not only from guys who are older than myself or peers, I learn from younger guys. And sometimes I just draw them together and I'll put out a topic and I want to learn what they think. So let's keep learning from each other, a multitude of people. That way you'll get the strengths of several people that will cancel out their weaknesses. And it just seems to me that Elihu just took these three guys and he's just quoting the same old theology and he, he really carries on their weaknesses and does it worse. You know, the next generational thinker is actually worse because he takes the same bad ideas and now he's angry about it and he's hammering Job even harder than they did. 
He makes the same pastoral mistakes. Be very careful. Fourthly, he's very arrogant. He doesn't seem to have a self-perception that would be consistent with everybody else's perception of him. Let's go back just to chapter 32, for example. Look at verse 10. He says, Therefore I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. Yikes. At, at least most of us here have enough diplomacy not to say it. But we do think it. <laughs> Just be very careful. Look at Elihu and let's learn from him. Look at verse 16. Must I wait now that they are silent? Verse 17. I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know. <laughs> Sounds like a little baby. Look at chapter 33. Verses, uh, verse 3. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. I have an upright heart and I'm not a hypocrite. And then look at verses 31 through 33. Pay attention, Job, old man. Listen to me. Be silent. Shut up, Job. I'm speaking. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want you to be cleared. Oh, thank you a lot, Elihu. But if not, then listen to me. Be silent. And I will teach you wisdom. <laughs> oh, I'm so embarrassed for him because it reminds me of me. Chapter 36, verse 2. Bear with me a little longer and I will show you. Hey, Elihu, our heads are already on the table. We can hire you. We're about ready to fall asleep. We feel like Eutychus, ready to fall out the window. No, bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. Oh, no. How much longer is he going to go? <laughs> I think I've told some of you my favorite long sermon story. It was in this room. It was a women's luncheon. And we had a foreign missionary, woman missionary speaking, and she went on and on. You know, it's usually like a 20-minute speech. She went 20, 30, 40 minutes. Well, she was still speaking at 40 minutes. My wife, you know, the senior minister's wife, was sitting at the head table, you know. So she's sitting at the head table, and there's a senior woman that will remain unnamed sitting next to her. This woman passes out. And her head goes right into her jello bowl. And then she falls off the chair and rolls under the table. My wife has the gift of mercy. <laughs> that's, that's her strongest gift. So she's immediately under that table with that woman, fanning her, giving her water, trying to, you know, loosen her necklace, whatever, get her, you know, revive her, so be sure she's alive. The speaker didn't skip a beat. <laughs> she went right on talking. No hesitation, no reference to what happened at the, at the head table. Everybody's just looking at this woman wondering, is she alive? My wife, Allison, was fanning her, giving her water. Finally, the woman kind of comes to, and she's under the table. And she, her eyes open, and here's what she says. Is that woman still speaking? <laughs> <laughs> this is a true story. This is a true story. And my wife says, well, yes, actually, she is. And so... They help the woman up and kind of cart her out of the room. This woman doesn't miss a beat, goes right on for 30 more minutes. Man. Elihu says, bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said on God's behalf. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear there's more to be said. 
just tremendous short-sightedness, tremendous lack of self-perception. And if you're a young guy, you know, just slow down. Get a hold of yourself so that you know who you are and what you have to contribute and how you're seen within the larger group. And that takes some time. Uh, then, fifthly, he, he, he is angry. And his anger is dictating much of what he's doing, unfortunately. Somebody needs to challenge him. The three friends probably needed to challenge him. Hopefully they did when this was all over. Now, thirdly and lastly, let's look at what Elihu would have been wise to do. First of all, let's talk about the anger. Get that anger directed. Direct it towards Satan. Satan's the enemy. Satan's the one who has foisted all of these things upon you and upon Job. He's the one who actually implemented all of it. And he did it with delight in his heart. He loved every minute of it. So if you want to hate a creature, a being of some sort, hate Satan. You have not only permission but responsibility to hate him. So get your anger focused. And human beings are victims of the evil one. Now, it's possible if you want to stretch this a little bit, you can, you can be angry at God. David is angry at God. Job is angry at God. Now, you're going to get it resolved if you're trusting in God. Job eventually gets it resolved. It just takes him a lot longer than does David. But it's better to focus that anger on Satan and go ahead and beat his brains out through evangelism, deeds of love and mercy, giving yourself to the expansion of the kingdom of God, worshiping the Lord. Satan hates that stuff. So if you want to put it in his face, that's the way you do it. And it's the best way to control your anger. Secondly, pray. Ask the Lord to help you know what, if anything, to say. Talk, have a conversation with the Lord about it. Uh, Elihu's deepest problem was a lack of the knowledge of God. We'll get to that in just a minute. Thirdly, think first. If you tend to wander in your speak, speaking, you're not very direct. You go around the mulberry bush four times before you actually get to what you're saying. If people are telling you that, then, then let me suggest that you write your thoughts out before you deliver them. Now, I know sometimes you're in situations where you need to be able to present something extemporaneously. And some of you have a gift for that. Some of you don't. If you don't, always try to move things towards your strength. So if you're in a group, you just say, could we table this until our next meeting next week? I've got some things I'm thinking about. I think I'd give you my best thoughts if I had some time on it. So you ask for permission to defer. I, I tell our guys on staff all the time, I'm not a deferring person. I'm an extemporaneous person. I just soon saw that right now. Let's have it out. That's about 25% of the population. The other 70, 75%, they'd much rather put all the pieces together and think about it and deliberate. And so what I tell 75% of our staff, you're going to be at your best if you will just use the tactic of deferral. Get it off the table. Go back and do your thinking and come back with your concise, well-thought-out presentation. And that way you're making your best contribution to this organization. If you are a person who doesn't think well on your feet, get the game played according to your rules as much as possible so that your strengths are being exploited instead of your weaknesses. So think first. And Elihu just, he blurted out because of his anger. Fourthly, admit your own limitations. 
he would have been a whole lot better off if he admitted this. If Elihu, he said, look, I, I waited because you guys are old and I'm young. But what he didn't say was, guys, I have limited experience on this. And I'm not sure I'm right on this. And Job, you're a lot wiser man than I am. You've been a lot more successful in business than I've been. You, you have a legacy that I don't have. You've seen so much more of life than I've ever seen. And you're in pain and I'm not. And I'm very limited in my ability to understand where you're coming from. You know, that just goes a long way if you just start off admitting your own limitations that you don't understand. What Elihu didn't do was to acknowledge that he had such very limited exposure to God's ways and very limited experience in time. What's 40 years? That's not real long in terms of the scope of human history. You just don't have much time to draw too many inferences over the scope of just 40 years. So admit your limitations and then you can make a plea and say, but I think I might be seeing something. You see how much easier that is to take? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a young guy. I'm not, sure I have, I'm not sure I'm seeing this correctly. You all have so much more experience than I do. Uh, and this is new to me. But I'll just tell you how it hits me. And if it's of any use, great. If not, you won't hurt my feelings by just rejecting my advice. That's a whole lot better and a whole lot more realistic. And everybody around you knows it. What it does, it says to everybody around you, hey, I understand myself. I know where I fit in. I know what my limitations are. Then what you do say has much more credibility. And it puts everybody at ease. They feel free to agree with you or disagree with you without rejecting you as a person. And here's the real limitation. I would suggest Eli Elihu's anger is fueled because Job is not repenting and they're not getting resolution. And these three guys have given up. Here's the problem. How do you understand God's goodness and human suffering without Christ and the cross? There is a built-in frustration in Old Testament wisdom before the fullness of Christ comes. There's a mystery that's not been yet fully revealed. And a lot of that frustration gets resolved when we see that Christ suffered undeserved injustices. Christ did it for a reason, to save us. We're taking up the cross of Christ and we're serving under a sovereign God who will one day, through the cross, bring us the crown. And that our scope of thinking must not only be in these 40 years or these three score and ten, our scope must be eternity. Ah, oh, then the, the frustrations begin to get resolved, at least intellectually. And Elihu was really limited in his thinking. Now, fifthly, Elihu would have been wise to ask some good questions. Questions are usually better than statements, unless you're just beating around the bush and you really want to make a statement. And then I'd appreciate it if you just go ahead and say it instead of asking me four questions. Just tell me what you think. But there are good questions like, how can I help? You've heard three guys. You've heard one guy. And they've made these profound arguments. And they're both off base. You don't have anything new to say. So just say, Job, how can I help you? You may disagree with Job. But these other guys have already made the points you're going to make. So you just try to help. You say, how can I help you, Job? You're suffering terribly. What can I do? That's a much better question than what Elihu did. Or you can say, Job, do you want more input? Is this helpful to you to talk this out? Or is it just making your, your misery worse? And you know what answer you'd get if you asked that of Job. 
he'd say, would you guys please, please shut up. And so he wouldn't have wasted these four speeches. Job didn't want to hear it. You're wasting your time. And you're much better off if, if you're in a tense situation. Find out if the other person even wants to talk about it. Even if you have all the answers, it's going to do you no good. Maybe you can write him a memo if you want to just cover your rear end on something. But if you really want to influence him, you have to wait until he's ready to receive it. Thirdly, what does Job think about what he has already heard? So if what you think has basically been said, just say, Job, how do you react to what Eliphaz said about this or what Bildad said about that or what Zophar said about this? How do you answer that? And so if Job wants to talk about it, go back to his experience. If someone comes to me and asks me for a piece of advice, you know, one of the first things I often ask is, well, tell me, who else have you talked to? What did they tell you? What was your reaction to what they told you? I'm reading the minutes. I'm not wasting my breath. Listen, I'm not going to get in this conflict with you. Let's, let's let you still stay in that conflict with old Joe over there. What did Joe tell you? What did you tell him? Let's talk about that. I'm not even going to get in the conflict. Why should I? You've already talked to Joe. Let's just talk about your relationship with Joe. Fourthly, what does Job think his next step should be? Okay, Job, you don't agree with Bildad. You don't agree with Zophar. You don't agree with Eliphaz. What do you think is the right thing to do? What's the next step for you, Job? And you get it out of Job. You ask him questions. When you know that you, don't, you, can't, uns, you can't solve this mystery, you get the man, the sufferer himself, to come forth with words of wisdom. And oftentimes, that's where you'll find the answer. So it's good to be young. It's good to be old. It's even better to be wise. Let's pray. Father, uh, please help us, for we are engaged in issues on a daily basis that demand that we be wise about whether we open our mouths and if we do, what we say. Please, increasingly in our lives, make us useful men, useful to everybody around us. And especially as we have charge for children or grandchildren or as we supervise in the workplace, or as we lead in the community, God, please help us to be very careful about how we use the positions and the power and the influence that you've given us. We pray for wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen.